2 Chronicles chapter 3. Let's read and then, or let's pray and then we'll get into it together. Yeah? Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. And we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, your desire is to speak to us today from your word. Father, I pray that as we break this down, that we would see what you're doing in us. That we would recognize in Solomon's work, your work in us. Father, that we would be those that want to cooperate with you in that work, respond to you in that work, and rejoice in that work. Father, please meet us here, we pray, and teach us by your Holy Spirit, Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we we pick it up in chapter 3, and if you remember from last time we were together... Solomon was getting ready to build the temple. He's taking the throne from his father David. He's gathered the materials. God's given him the wisdom to build. And we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. And it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. And it's important that we see this. Because one of the things that we're going to see today is that what is happening here, what's being highlighted here, is the actions of Solomon. It's tempting to take all the information we're going to see in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and make a typology of it. Kind of push it forward and say, okay, what is this a type of for the New Testament? It's tempting to do that, and we'll do a little bit of that. But actually, the reality here is the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles is wanting to encourage, remember, those who were in captivity in Babylon as they've come back to rebuild. He's wanted to encourage them to rebuild. And what's interesting to me about this is that in wanting to encourage them about the temple they're rebuilding, he describes how extensive, how beautiful the temple was that Solomon built. And I I had to ask myself when I began studying, how is this going to be encouraging? How would this have encouraged the audience? And I think this is the answer we're going to see, that this, the king's temple that Solomon's building, is, 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 is to show us that God is still building his people. Now what's interesting here is in, if you were to read in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, you would see that uh, there's a real much more detailed uh, description of the, the temple that Solomon built. A lot of more details about what he did, how he did it. But here in these, ver- in these chapters, verses uh, chapters 3 and 4, uh, we see really this is more about why he built. That the things that the chronicler keeps in these chapters are to show us why uh, he built what he did. What, what was the king's heart behind the building of the temple? And so in verse 1 we pick it up. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. Now, it's interesting because the author here is connecting two things. He's connecting uh, this, the, the fact that this is Mount Moriah with the fact that this is also the place that God had chosen through David to build the temple. Now, you remember what happened on Mount Moriah, why Mount Moriah was important. One reason, of course, was God had shown himself to David there. But more than that, those who read this would have known this goes all the way back to Abram, Genesis chapter 22. When, when God has showed Abraham that he made a promise to Abraham that from his loins would come a, a mighty nation. 
Abraham, who was married to his wife Sarah. They had no children. They thought, how's that possibly going to be? And God, after many, many years of waiting, God does a miracle. And they find themselves with child. And they have this child, Isaac, the promised child. And sometime comes, maybe when Isaac is a teenager or a young adult. And what happens is God says to Abraham, I want you to take down your son, your only son. And I want you to sacrifice him on an altar on Mount Moriah. And what does Abraham do? He goes up there. He gets all the things for the sacrifice. His son submits to this. He puts him on the altar. And right before he's going to slay him, an angel says, stop. Mm. Now, it's interesting because the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham did that because he believed, okay, this is the promised son. God says it's through this son that the nation is going to be built. And so if I slay this son, i got to believe God can raise him from the dead. Hebrews tells us that's what Abraham was believing. Now, of course, there's a picture of Jesus in that. But besides that, there's also this reality that Abraham had to believe that God could take something that looks dead and resurrect it. God can do that. God does that. And so by the author connecting that incident with the fact that this is where the temple is going to be rebuilt, you can imagine that the guys who are rebuilding it, the first readers of Chronicles are thinking, okay, yeah, God can rebuild anything. It's especially important because we know from some of the minor prophets that this is, this is what uh, they were worried about. Listen to this. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 and verses 9, here, here's what the, the, the prophet says. He says, Who of you is left who saw this house, that's the temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But then he makes this promise later on. Listen, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You can imagine if you were from an older generation who had seen this glorious building, Solomon's Temple, that we'll see described today. And then years later, after, after being in captivity for 70 years, you come back and everything's kind of just dull. And small. And not that great. You would probably be discouraged as well. And yet God wants to encourage his people. Look, I'm doing this work. Even if it seems small in your eyes. I'm doing this work. Now. What what I think the author wants them to see about Solomon is. Solomon's devotion to this work. Is proved by his actions. If you turn quickly back to chapter 2, verse 1, if you remember from last time, it says, Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord. He determined. But here it says that Solomon began to build. In fact, it says it twice, both in verse 1 and verse 2. Solomon began to build. This is important. Because when it comes to determination, determination is only as good as its actions. Anybody here make New Year's resolutions this year? Oh, smart people. A couple, just a couple of you, yes. Wise enough to know. Don't do that. It's a waste of time. But it's a waste of time because what happens is we think, oh, I'm just determined to do this, but actually we never actually follow through or we rarely follow through, do we? Now, here, here's, the, here's the important thing for us to recognize. It's, there's nothing wrong for us to say, I'm determined to do something, to commit to do something. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The issue is we should be wise about what we're committing ourselves to. Can I follow through? From a Christian perspective, as those of us that are Jesus followers, it has to be, can I trust God to give me the grace I need to follow through with this thing? 
And Solomon was in this place. Solomon, he, he, his actions were, were proven, uh, or his devotion was proven by his actions. He was devoted to the God of his father David, the God, who's also the God of Abraham. But also he, he sees this, we can see the building itself, the action itself as an act of worship. He was committed to this. Now, I want us to, to think about this because this is the example that's set for us by Jesus himself. We forget that sometimes. I think we as, as evangelical Christians, as those who believe the gospel of grace, we can sometimes be so concerned that we understand that when Christ died for us or when he lived and died for us, it was just to pay our sins. We're so focused on the fact that he's the substitute, which he is, we'll talk more about that later, that we forget that he also came as the example. What did he tell his disciples? Come, believe what I'm going to do? No. He said, come what? Follow me. Come follow me. He set a pattern for us that by the Spirit of God, we're called to follow. It's how we get to know God more. In fact, we see this uh, with Jesus in John chapter 4, after Jesus, when Jesus is ministering to the woman at the well in Samaria. It says that Jesus said to the disciples, they, the woman had come and gone and gone back to her village to say, wow, this must be the Messiah. And the disciples come up seeing that he's just been talking to them and they're kind of tripping out about that because it's not part of their culture. <laughs> and so when he, they say to him, Rabbi, eat, probably thinking, you're dizzy, you need to eat some food, you're not thinking straight. And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. See, Jesus was devoted to the Father's will because he knew it would benefit us. And being committed to what the Father had for him to do, which was to show us his life, to live a perfect sinless life, to be able to be a perfect sinless sacrifice, and to be able to give us a perfect righteousness. He was committed to the Father to that. We see a similar thing with, with Solomon. Solomon's Lord, I'm committed to you. This is the work you have for me. I'm devoted to you. I want to finish this work well. I don't know what happened to us. As modern Christians, I don't know wh where we got off track, but we sometimes think that I just need to believe the gospel. That's all that matters. And, you know, this idea of commitment as a response of faith, it just doesn't seem to be there. Now, maybe part of the problem is a lot of people don't understand the gospel of grace. They don't recognize that they actually have a position of righteousness with God. Maybe that's the problem. And so the whole idea of work scares them. Or maybe the issue is we think that, you know, that God has nothing for us to do. We're not that important. But actually God has something for all of us to do, which we'll see later on. And Solomon gives us this great example of his devotion to God proven by his actions. Now, look at verse 3. We'll now get into the kind of nitty-gritty of what Solomon did in building the temple. And it's going to be, it'd be easy to get distracted by uh, measurements and, and figures and stuff. More, let's, let's kind of just try to see the big picture of what he's doing. In fact, let's see specifically how Solomon's priorities are seen in his investment. How he invested uh, in the building of the temple. Verse 3 says, This is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits. And the vestibule, that would be the porch, was in the front of the sanctuary, was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and its height was 120. We don't really know what that means, actually. 
But he, we, here's what we do know. He overlaid the inside of it with pure gold. Now, so the author wants to take us in this little tour, kind of a 3D tour. In fact, you can find one of this on YouTube. You can find a 3D tour of Solomon's temple. And I was tempted to bring it up, but I thought it might be distracting. And, and you can see that, 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 that we're kind of getting this minimal, this kind of uh, little tour of, of, of the building that Solomon was, was building. And the first thing he kind of tells us is, you, as if you're walking up to the temple and you'd see how big the foundation is, and you'd see this porch or vestibule that Solomon built around the front of the temple. And the thing about that vestibule, that porch, it's, it's what's called Solomon's porch in the book of Acts was a place where all Jewish males could come up. It's, it's as close as they could get to the holy place, to the place where only the priests can go in. And so th- it was kind of, in a sense, a, a, a way to go. You can kind of come in and you can peer into the holy place. You can get as close as possible. And what's interesting is Solomon lines the inside of this kind of open porch with gold. Now, besides the fact there's a lot of gold and it's worth a lot of money, what would that gold be for? One of the things we know about Solomon's temple was, because it faced east and it was lined with this gold, when the sun would hit it, it would shine so bright you could see it for miles. Can you imagine sort of, it's a feast day, and you're thinking, okay, I want to go bring my offering to God. And you're making your way there, and several miles before you even get to Jerusalem, way up on the hill that you see, where Jerusalem is, you see this bright flash, whoosh. Whoosh. Remember, this is the days before electricity. You just see this massive bright flash in the middle of the day. What is that? That's the temple. That's where God meets his people. And you can see that God was d- d- doing this. He was laying this out to draw people in. And, and you see this, this, this idea there would be a vestibule where people could glimpse into the holy place. The fact that it would reflect this gold to be seen from miles away. The, the priority of Solomon in building this was to say, let's draw near God's presence. But there's more to that. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And the larger room he paneled, that is the holy place, he paneled with cypress, and he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work. Uh, later on, we find out that he also parved, that he also had uh, carved these, these pomegranates. And he says, listen, and he decorated the house with precious stones for what? What does it say? For beauty. And the gold was gold from Parvium. And he overlaid the house, the beams, the doors, its walls with gold. And he carved cherubim on the walls. Now, I want to bring this up because what's interesting to me about this, besides, again, lots of gold, is the reality that he's actually carving images into the temple of God. Think about this for a second. He's carving images of palm trees. Probably because palm trees were a, when there'd be a grove of palm trees, if you're in a desert area, a grove of palm trees usually means water, oasis, a place of rest. He's carving, we'll see, pomegranates. Pomegranates being these sort of fruit from the outside doesn't look too nice, but you open it up and there's these jewels of juicy bits of seed that when you eat, they refresh you and they actually have seed to produce more in each little kernel. Cherubim, which were these angels, we'll talk more about cherubim in a minute, but these, these angels that were always in the presence of God worshiping. Now, does this strike you weird that in the temple of the great and only God, there's carved images? That's, does that seem a bit weird? It seems a bit weird in one sense because God himself says in the commandments, you shall, make, you shall carve no graven image. But what's going on here is not, listen, really important, this is not about them worshiping palm trees 
uh, or, or pomegranates or anything else or angels. Or gold, yeah. What this is about, listen, this is simply, as it says, for beauty. It's for beauty. That, That when Solomon builds this, he builds this so that God's people can experience God's beauty. So the artwork itself, the particular artwork, says something about who God is and what he's provided for his people, no doubt. But do you realize that art itself, beauty itself, says something about God. Because we don't serve a God who just says, sorry Lot, it's tough for you, and you know, I hope you get through it. We serve a God who's created, who's created all things. Everything that we see that is awe-inspiringly beautiful in this creation was made by our creator. In fact, God's made this world so amazing, even in its fallen state, it's still so amazing that when we see it, we're tempted to worship it itself. I don't know if you've ever been to, any of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon in, in the United States. Sorry for bringing up something about America, but the Grand Canyon is pretty amazing. <laughs> You've been there, right? Josh knows. My experience of the Grand Canyon was we went on the way somewhere else. We stopped. We got to the edge. You, you stand at the edge and you look. And it is just so vast. To be honest, it doesn't seem real. It, 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 you're thinking, if I kind of like throw a rock, I'm going to hit some kind of wobbly picture back there. It can't be real. It's so huge. In fact, I'm told by friends of mine. I have a good friend who lives right, actually near the Grand Canyon and hikes there uh, at least once a, a month. He says, if you go down into it, then that's when you're, when you're into it. It's when you really realize this thing is massive. It's huge. He says, and you do feel a sense of awe. God's created beauty, listen, to point that because God is greater than his creation, if his creation is that beautiful, how beautiful is our God? God wants us, listen, God wants us to experience his beauty. Solomon's priority in investing all this into the temple was so that his people would know, God's people would know how beautiful their God is. The temple was meant to point past itself to the beauty of God. Listen to this. What the psalmist says, David the psalmist says in Psalm 27, he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Interesting that David would write that before there was a temple. (laughs) He longed to see the beauty of God. And it seems to me that he instilled in his son the beauty of God. I'll tell you what, that's a good thing for us parents to learn. You know, our kids do need to understand what Christian morals are very much. so. Our, Our kids need to understand what Christian ethics are. Very much so. Our kids need to understand the the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a Christian. What we need to believe and not believe. They need to know that. But you know what they need to see? They need to see that their parents see God is beautiful. You know what your neighbors need to see? That you see God is beautiful. What gives you a sense of awe other than God? Because I'll tell you what, that's meant to point you past it to God himself. This is what Solomon's priorities show us. To draw near to God's presence, to experience God's beauty, but also, listen, verses 8 to 14, to recognize God's holiness. Look at verse 8. And he made the most holy place. Now, so some of you know this, but you may not know. The holy place 
If you can picture kind of a, a large rectangular room, the holy place, and inside of that room, a room inside that room that was basically like a cube, a large cube, that would be the most holy place or what's called the holy of holies. He's not going to describe how that was made. He made the most holy place. Its length was according to its width of the house, 20 cubits, the width of 20 cubits. He overlaid it with, listen to this, 600 talents of fine gold. That is so much gold, we can't even calculate it completely. The weight of the nails were 50 shekels. These are like the kind of, think, think of these big, huge uh, nails that you might, you might have used to, like, to put, put down railroad ties or what they call here, sleepers. And these things are covered, listen, they're covered in gold. Obviously, they're not made of gold, otherwise they just fall apart, but they're covered in gold. He says, um, I lost my place. There he says, he says, and it was overlaid, he overlaid the entire upper area with gold. Now, this is important because, so we, we've seen already in the temple, he's investing a lot of gold. It's, it's a beautiful, artistic place. But in the Holy of Holies, now, know this, in the Holy of Holies, only one man entered there only once a year. And yet that room gets the most investment. Because that's the room where God dwelt. That's the place that God would come and receive the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Now, now this is important. Because one of the things is, is about this room is it shows that there's a holiness of God, that God is, is uniquely different than anything He's created. He transcends all that He's made. He's separate from all that He's made. He's holy. There is none like Him. Holiness is not just moral purity. It is that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's God's complete differentness from us. Now, we bear His image, so there's some, there's some things that seem right or intuitive about God to us, but He's separate from us. And this room that has, it's, it's, it's covered in, a, in, a, in a, an amount of gold that we can't even calculate. This is the place that God says deserves the most investment. Now it's important for us that we understand this separation. Because it's not just the fact that God is other than us that separates us from us. Because we know when God created man, he creates Adam and Eve. Was God separated from Adam and Eve? No, he fellowshiped with them in the garden. He enjoyed relationship with the, our, our first parents in, in his creation. That's what God did. But what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, didn't they? They sinned, and in sinning, they passed it on to the rest of us. In fact, God says to his people in Isaiah chapter 59, this is what God says. This is why there had to be a most holy place. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, I want to pull this into this whole context of, of, of Solomon's priorities being seen in his investment. He builds this, this temple in such a way that it would cause God's people to want to draw near to God's presence. He builds it in such a way that people would experience something of God's beauty, even if it was just a glimpse. But he also builds in such a way that people would recognize God's holiness and their own sinfulness. 
This is the rub, isn't it? We all love the idea of a God who loves us. We all hate the idea of a God who says, yes, but your sin separates you from me. We hate that idea. Well, we can admit we're not perfect, but to say we're sinners, come on. But we really are. I mean, we really, really are, guys. You know, Jesus came as the temple incarnate. He's the, he, the, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, the scripture says. And if you look at Jesus as the standard of perfect humanity, which he is, you see someone who always loved people perfectly. He always was submitted to God perfectly. He was always obedient perfectly. And you compare your life to his, and what do you realize? You're, just not, you're not just imperfect. You fall radically short. In fact, do we realize this? That the most religious people of Jesus' day, the people that felt they were the most uh, right with God, felt completely threatened by Jesus. Do you know why? He exposed them. And it's the same reason why we feel threatened by God. We, we might be like those who kind of would have seen the temple from afar. Go, what is that light? What, is that, what does that shine? And we're drawn in. Oh, I want to see what that is. We might get up on the vestibule and get a glimpse and go, oh, yeah, there's something about that that's appealing to me. I long for that. But then, boom, stop. You can't go any further. You know why we can't go any further? Because of our sin. Because of our sin. We need to let that sink in a little bit. One of the reasons I, I, I believe that we as modern Christians have lost our sense of zeal for God, devotion for God, celebration of God, is we don't really think we're that bad. And because we don't think we're that bad, we think what Jesus said was nice, but not awe-inspiring, not pure mercy and grace. Now, all is not lost, don't worry. There's something more to see in this. Look at verse 14 specifically. In verse 14 specifically. Okay? Oh, actually, I should, before verse 14. I should read this. Verses 10 to 13. I forgot those, right? In the midst of this holy place, what do you see? The most holy place that he made these two cherubim. Now, cherubim are a type of angels. Now, you might have heard the word cherub, and you might be picturing little babies with wings, cute, fat babies with wings. That's not cherubim. <laughs> if, you, if you read the book of Ezekiel, what you see about cherubs are there are these creatures that are massive, powerful, having four faces, a way to kind of distinguish them. They're not animal nor human. They're their own creation. And their whole purpose of existence is to worship God. So in the most holy place that only one guy, the high priest, can go one time a year, as soon as he walks in, he sees these massive creatures made of uh, overlaid with gold, and their eyes are forward onto the Ark of the Covenant, where the worship would take place, where the sacrifice would be made, the mercy seat. And it was like this, this reminder to to that high priest, and, and the knowledge, a reminder to God's people that creatures greater than us are simply, their whole existence is about worshiping God. And yet we as lesser creatures think, well, I'll worship God on a Sunday and do him a good favor by doing that. <laughs> but then look at verse 14. So verses 14, it says, listen, and they made the veil, 
of blue, purple, and crimson, and fine linen, and wove cherubim into it. So again, that picture of these mighty angels, a sense of that everyone who's here should be here to worship. But a veil also said, you're not allowed in. And this is important to understand. Because the Bible talks a lot about this. It gives us this picture of this. You guys remember when Jesus was crucified, Matthew chapter 27? It says, on the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. In other words, Jesus wasn't killed through crucifixion. He was crucified, and he gave up his life. Okay? Then, notice it says, then behold, the veil of the temple. This is the veil it's talking about here. The veil of the temple was torn in two from what? Top to bottom. And the earthquakes and the rocks were split. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of this holy of holy place that before only one man, one time a year, could go into the presence of God. That barrier has been torn. Why was it torn? Because Christ was crucified. That's the only reason it was torn. That's the only reason we can enter in. Folks, listen. This is extremely good news. The, the veil's torn. You don't have to tear the veil. But you're... You know, put your razor knife away. Put your scissors away. Stop trying to crawl underneath or go around. It's torn in two. The way's open. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10. This is from the New Living Translation. It's a great paraphrase. Listen to this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most high place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. We'll come back to that, that idea of being washed in pure water in a minute. Guys, this, this is an amazing thing. Because Solomon's priorities of investment were about to show the most valuable place is to be right there in the presence of God. And God's people, the, the, the people of Israel, believed that God would one day restore all things. That one day they'd go back to that place where they would walk with God in the same way Adam and Eve walked with God. And guess how God made that happen? By sending His Son. Guess what we get to do? Come right into his presence. So what did you do at church today? We sang some songs. We had some good coffee. John babbled on for an hour or so. And then we went home. Oh, no. When we come together, we come together as God's people, and we don't just stand on the porch and look in. We don't just kind of get to start doing the work of the priests, which we'll talk about in a minute. We get to go right to the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God because and only because of the work of Jesus. Do you see why the investment was there? Can you see why Solomon did that? It was pointing to a day when we'd all get to do that. And today is that day. We could do that now. And even more so when the Lord returns. Amen. Come on. Now, there's more to this, right? From, verses, uh, from verse 15 of chapter 3 all the way through uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, we see kind of the description of all these different tools that Solomon has made, okay? 
And, and these tools were all tools for the priests. And so we want to look at these because they teach us something, all right? So we won't look at every single tool, but we'll get an idea of what's going on here. How Solomon's provisions were tools for the priests. Verse 15 says, And he made in the front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital on the top of each one was, uh, of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chains work. So again, they were ornamental and beautiful as well. And on the inner, uh, as in the inner sanctuary, and he put them on top of the pillars. He made 100 pomegranates. He made them on the wreath of chain work. Then he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand, one on the left. And he called the name uh, of the one on the right, Jachin, and the, one on, uh, the name on the one on the left, Boaz. Now, these, these are not just like posts. These pillars are so impressive, they get their own names. <laughs> now, I want you to think what this is. This is kind of on the, on the very front, kind of where the vestibule or the porch would reach to or, or be ready to enter into the, the most holy place. And you would see these massive pillars. I mean, just huge. I don't know what, what are the biggest pillars you've seen, but these would probably compete with this. And the pillars had, were named. And the names are radically significant. Because Jochen means, he will establish. Boaz means, in him is strength. So again, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelite worshipers. They're going to come to God to bring their offerings to God. And what do they see? These two massive pillars. They know that they can only get so close to God. They're hoping just for a glimpse of God. And they're wondering, how is God going to, how is this going to mean or equal to or lead to God restoring all things? They're wondering, how is this going to work? And what do they see? They see he will establish in him his strength. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. You see, these pillars prepared people for worship. We don't come and worship to say, all right, God, I want, I want to convince you to do it. I want to overcome your reluctancy so you'll do it. No, we come to God and we say, God, you're worthy to be worshipped because you will do it. That's the difference between being a Christian and a religious person. Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Moreover, it says, He made a bronze altar, 20 cubits in its length, 20 cubits in its width, and 10 cubits in its height. This is interesting because we saw before, didn't we, that there was already a bronze altar that had been at the other place. Um, oh, it was, I just lost the name of it. But the place where he went to worship, where, where the tabernacle had been set up and before that God said, I want it here on Mount Moriah. And he had made offerings on this burnt offering, on this altar. But here he makes a new one. In fact, this one is like twice the size as the old one. This is interesting. It's not only bigger and wider, also it's a lot higher. It says it was 10 cubits in its height. That's 18 feet high. Now remember the burnt altar is where they would, they would take, uh, the burnt altar, or the altar would be where they took um, the sacrifices and they would burn them, like especially the burnt offerings, those, those offerings of consecration, the offerings that said, God, I'm yours completely, and, and they would burn these things. Why exalt the offer? Why elevate the, the altar like that? So that no matter where you were standing, you could see the offering being made. And as you saw that animal being consumed or that grain offering being fully consumed, you said, Lord, I'm, you could say, Lord, I'm fully yours. You could have the hope that, that you could see that God was doing this work, a place where you could focus your attention. Now, from verses 2 to 5, he, he talks about the sea of cast bronze. And he describes it this way, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. 
It was completely round. And basically, I'll just kind of sum it up. He describes it as this huge round bath full of, of hundreds and hundreds of, of gallons of water. Now, what was this for? Well, we know later on that this, what this was for was for the, the priests to cleanse themselves. So you had this idea, again, this was slightly elevated. The priest would walk up there. He'd wash his hands. He'd sit on the, on the wide brim. He'd wash his feet. He'd wash his hands ceremonially. And he'd do all this before he served in the temple. It was a way to say, I know I need to be cleansed before I can serve. That the receiving of cleansing comes, from the giving of, comes before the giving of service. In fact, listen to this. Exodus chapter 30, verse 20 says, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, this is to the priests, or when they come near the altar uh, to minister, to burn uh, an offering made by fire, they shall wash with water lest they die. Cool. So important is God that, that his priests would recognize cleansing comes before service. He says, if you don't do this, death. That's how serious he wants them to take it. Now, that might sound harsh to you, but there's a picture here that's really important that God wants us to see. He wants to see that, that this was provided, this was a tool for the priests, so that they could be cleansed, they could know they're clean. Do you know the thing that keeps us from being effective in our relationship with God and in our works for God? Guilt. Guilt. Now, let's be honest, we are guilty. We are guilty people. We sin all the time. If you don't realize that, let's have a conversation afterwards. And I don't mean that harshly. I mean, we, are, we fall so short of what we know we even should be. In fact, it's an interesting thing about human nature. I don't care what standard of morality you have. If, if, you're, if you're here today and you, you're not a Christian at all, and all this stuff is kind of new and a bit weird to you, and you think, I'm a pretty good person, whatever your standard of goodness is, you can make up your own standard of goodness, and guess what? You will fall short of that standard. It's the funny thing about human nature. You can say, I just think I need to be this kind of a person. Great. Have you always been that kind of person? Well, no. No. But usually, when's the last time you weren't that kind of person? Uh, yesterday. We all fall short, even of our own standards. God's standards were not even close. But what happens? God has provided a way for us to be cleansed. For our sins not just to be kind of covered up and hidden, but washed Away, completely washed away. The priests had this, so they could serve well in the temple. Now, from verses 6 to 18, Solomon uh, mentions a whole bunch of specific tools that were provided so that every ministry of the priest was provided for. He talks about in chapter 6, these 10 lavers, or these would be kind of smaller baths, so that these were not for them to wash their hands and feet, the priests, but to, for the priests to wash the sacrifices before they were laid on the altar. He talks about there was 10 lampstands of gold. There was 10 tables that would have the showbread or the offerings of bread there. There was a, over 100 bowls of gold. These were kind of just used to kind of transport things back and forth. You know, you can imagine a lot of animal slaughtered. I won't go... Well, we'll need more vivid than that. You can use your imagination. But they needed those bowls to transfer stuff out and away. They did all these things. And it says specifically in verse 11 that Huram, this is, remember, this is the half-Gentile, half-Jewish man from Tyre who was this expert designer and craftsman, that Herman made the, uh, uh, Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. And so Huram finished doing all the work that was 
to do for the King Solomon for the house of God. Interesting that those things are mentioned specifically because the author of Kings doesn't mention them. And yet, they're mentioned here probably because these were the only tools that the readers, those who first read Chronicles, still had. Everything else was missing. It's a kind of way to connect the past to the present. Now, 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 I want to be clear about something. You might go, oh, that's really nice, John, but what's it got to do with us? Listen, the Bible says that we, as Jesus followers, are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest is someone who represents God before men and men before God. That's what a priest does. Now, we don't need any priest because Jesus is our great high priest. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need another priest. But guess what we get to do? We get to do priestly stuff. We get to go to God with other people to help them connect to God. We get to, uh, we get to talk to people as representatives of God. We get to do the work of the ministry. And the Bible teaches, listen, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that every single one of us, if we're Jesus followers, are called to the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not what I do here on a Sunday morning or someone else does on a Sunday morning preaching. The work of the ministry isn't even just being on ministry teams. The work of the ministry, listen, is about us taking the truth of God to the world. It's about us demonstrating the love of God to one another. It's about us being purposefully, intentionally connected to one another so that we can show that the mission of God is to restore all things. And because he's restoring us from the inside out, we show that by how we do priestly ministry to each other. If you don't believe me, listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4. Here's how Paul wrote. In fact, I would encourage you later on to look up Ephesians 4. Read from, chapter, from verse 11 all the way to verse 16. I'm just going to read a few of these verses. Again, the New Living Translation. He says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to his church. Here's the gifts. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. So you may not feel this way, but I'm actually a gift to you. You're welcome. If you don't like it, talk to Jesus because he's the one who... No, but here's, here's why God gives, gives these offices or gives these positions and gives these responsibilities. That's why, listen, their responsibility is to equip God's people. That's you. To do his work. That's God's work. And to build up the church, the body of Christ. Notice what it says. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So that when you say, oh, I don't really have anything to offer, actually the whole body suffers and you're not getting why you're here. Because you're not here. You don't come on a, hopefully you know this, coming on a Sunday morning is not just so you can go, oh, I've done my religious duty this week. No. The reason we teach the scriptures the way we teach the scriptures, the reason we gather together is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Do you realize that's why we have a 20-minute break? The 20-minute break is to make sure you all have an opportunity to do ministry, to be priests. Do you realize, listen, this is, this is the picture we see with Solomon. Solomon's provisions in the temple were for tools for the priests. They weren't just decorations. They were useful. They were practical. Every single skill you have, every single thing you possess, God has given to you that you might use it to bless others. Every single thing. This is what the temple uh, points to. Now, I'm almost done. Lastly, 
Solomon's faithfulness is seen in his finished work. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold, the table uh, on which the, was the showbread, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of the purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold. And as for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place, the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. Now, in saying this to us, what's he showing us? The author is reminding his first readers, and the Spirit's reminding us how much detail went into this, and that Solomon was faithful in the details. He was faithful in, you might say, the little things. Now, to say, I made the temple sounds grand. To say, I made a ladle, not so much. But let's be honest, most of us are just ladle makers. If you've, yeah. Is God glorified in that? Absolutely. Are, are God's people helped by that? Absolutely. Be faithful in whatever God's called you to do. You know, we have, um, I think, 80 people on ministry teams in this church. That's a lot. It's a good percentage. And, and it's a blessing that people would take the time to fill an application. Sometimes they need to be interviewed. If they're doing children's ministry, they have to be background checked. They go through this whole process. They get to come to training. There's a, don't forget, there's a training the 14th of March for the children's ministry. A little plug there. You're welcome, love, if you hear this message. And, and, and you know, we, they do all this stuff to come in maybe once at the most twice a month and to make sure those children are protected, and are taught about Jesus. Now, now, do you realize that they can do that faithfully or unfaithfully? There's a whole group of people that come in maybe once or twice a month, and they make sure that things are set up, that the people know where they're supposed to go, to make sure people feel welcome when they come in, and they can do that faithfully or unfaithfully. There's people that come in every single week that aren't even on a ministry team to make sure that they have chairs to sit on. And they can do that faithfully or unfaithfully. There are a group of men who lead house groups, making sure there's a place, where, an atmosphere where we can grow in our love for each other and learn how to disciple each other. And they can do that faithfully or unfaithfully. You get my point. There's so many things to do, so many opportunities to do ministry, and we can do them faithfully or unfaithfully. The, the, the point we're seeing here is Solomon did it faithfully. Now, here's a reality. And I say this after 29 years of ministry, I have not always been faithful, and neither will you be. But this is the point beyond us. To him who was faithful. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, So all the work of Solomon had done in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of, of God. He wasn't just faithful in the details, he was faithful until the end. Listen, this is the Jesus, this is the king we serve. See, our king is forming us into his temple. 
And he is going to be faithful to finish it to the end. We'll see in future weeks, Solomon didn't end so well, but Jesus did and does. I'll close with this verse, these verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, that's everything you are, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Folks, you are the king's temple. If you're in Christ, you are the king's temple. He is building you in a great way. You can trust him to finish that work. And Father, we thank you that you love us. Lord, we recognize we're, we don't deserve that love, but we take it, Lord. We take it as free grace. We pray, teach us to grow in it, Lord. Teach us to love you more than we love other things. Teach us to love you and hate the things that interfere with that. Teach us to, to teach us, Lord, to, to follow you in such a way that our devotion is shown in our action. That our priorities are seen in our investment. That we take your provisions and we use them as priests. And that we finish well because you're doing a work that you've promised to finish. Father, we pray you do this for us. And we trust that you will. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen.